I'm not a preacher, and I'm not drunk. I'm just a politician. Everybody, come out of out of your houses. Clarence Hillian is going to make you a super human being. All right. Welcome back to Crack Pot Cinema, episode 002. Point two, uh, a little behind the scenes, a little inside baseball. Since Aaron and I were such uh, athletic types in past lives, um, this is a redo um, of the what are we calling this episode? Ritter me this episode, where we uh, salute the some of the through the cracks films of the great John Ritter. Um, it's a little bumpy. In terms of uh, my inability to do anything electronically, and I want to uh, really send huge heartfelt thanks to the heroic CP, the EP of the Mr. Skin organization, who came over to my home and rescued uh, our our uh, recording station here. And um, so we've already spoiled each other on the opinions of these films. So I'm thinking this is going to be a real slog. It's going to be a real bore. <laughs> I don't think torturous for us, but that. but but not nearly as bad as it will be for the listeners. So, <laughs> so prepare uh, yourself. What would you like to say? Joining me is Aaron Lee from Los Angeles. Oh, by the way, I'm uh, Mike McPadden, author of Teen Movie Hell and Heavy Metal Movies. And joining me is Aaron Lee, um, uh, TV writer, producer from shows like Family Guy and Superstore, and and comedy shows like that. Yeah, and. Um, We've been friends since 1993, and uh, initially bonding over Danny Peary's cult film books, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and our uh, and Mad, crazy zines that we published, and Mad Magazine, and the Golden Turkey Awards books by the Med Beds, yeah. and, and we are going to do a deep uh, Golden Turkey thing because that, oh, yeah. you know, Peary Peary gets love now. Um, other zine writers are getting love these days, but uh, the poor Medved brothers have really uh, fallen by the wayside. And um, they were as much an introduction to me to the the inner workings of what we call crackpot cinema as anybody. Yeah. And uh, I still revisit those books a lot. And I still think their Hollywood Hall of Shame is not only their masterpiece, but it really is one of the great unsung cinema books. Yeah. So uh, we've put off revisiting our john ritter opinions long enough yet so that we have something else to talk about yeah but no this is going to be great because this is a a hot topic john ritter is always great to talk about um we know him we love him um first came to prominence actually do you, you know his initial little breakout star is born moment was on the mary tyler moore show during the episode where uh ted is marrying georgette and they need to find a clergyman and they run across the street to a tennis court where there's a uh, minister in his tennis whites, uh, played by John Ritter, who they just kind of ask if he'd help them out. And he runs up the steps and we meet Ritter in his full persona, extremely charming, naive, vulnerable, uh, but witty and uh, physically comedic in everything he does. And, and just a very bright, shining presence. Well, I don't know. And about from there, a, of course, I don't know about a classy. Okay. I don't know about a classy show like Mary Tyler Moore, but. I watched a show called Three's <laughs> Company, my friend. Yeah, I'm not familiar with it. Tell us about it. <laughs> it was basically 70s porn on TV with, with no actual sex. 
and uh, and it was the misadventures of uh, 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 John Ritter as a as Jack Tripper uh, living in a in an apartment with two lovely ladies uh, as his uh, platonic roommates, but um, but pretending to be gay so that he could get away with it because that was naughty and scandalous. And when did that show premiere? 77, 76, 76. Oh my God. That's even earlier than I thought. Wow. The year of our bicentennial. Yeah. And you know, it was a thing, even like when I was, um, dating and what have you, uh, and, and had, you know, I had relatives like this was in the nineties. Like when I lived with girlfriends that we, uh, we kind of had to keep it on the DL. It was a scandalous thing deep into uh, the American century to have uh, mixed gender roommates. And this was back when there were only two genders that anybody ever talked about. So, And it was all um, under the nose of, uh, well, the Ropers were their first landlords. But I was going to say also yeah. Mr. Furley, played by Don Knotts, who we yeah. just talked yeah. about his uh, epic The Love God. And, yeah. Um, yeah. and the great Don Knotts, they were hiding it from him. Uh, and 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 the Ropers, which was the tremendous Norman Fell and Audra Lindley, which with a really funny dynamic that we hadn't seen, I think, uh, which was that she was uh, always horny for sex and he never wanted to have sex. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was kind of proto Al Bundy, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. But he'd also do the thing that baffled me as a kid, and then became like the, the greatest thing ever, where. He'd sock it to her. She'd be like, you know, Stanley, I could use a hand over here. And he'd be like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll hang on, I'll get my 10-foot pole. And then he would turn and look into the camera, just this complete, like, you know, zing. And it made me think of, like, there were other, like, insult comics in the early 70s. Like, I, re- I barely kind of remember Ed Sullivan still being on. I was born in 1968. And they would like they get off a zinger and then they'd lick their finger and chalk one up in the air. He had that kind of move. <laughs> yeah, they were so they were. He was the master. Yes, they were the Lockhorns. Remember that comic strip that I was yeah. associated them with that, or, or the Bickersons, or one of those. The yeah. Bickersons, except they weren't the Bickersons because they weren't tragic like the Bickersons. <laughs> it's true. You didn't get the feeling Norman Feld was going to bash her face in uh, the second that the camera <laughs> went was away from them. Yeah. That's true. The Bickersons is an ancient radio show that uh, another super cool thing that Aaron and I are into is old time radio. <laughs> the, the, the thing I always <laughs> swore I would not get into because it's so late and wow. so boring. Mu- I always swore I won't do this. And now it's all I want to do is listen to it. Yeah. Much like uh, the movie we discussed in passing last week, Screw on Screen, the tagline was the magazine you swore you'd never read. <laughs> now becomes the movie you can't miss and we're always like i swear i will never read screw what's this a movie let's Uh, go and and you know three's company was the really i guess the along with charlie's angels the archetypal jiggle show like the appeal jiggle tv here's fred silverman right the who recently died and man you look at his credits he's the guy he brought all in the family on the air yeah he oversaw the CBS Rural Purge. I mean, he was a major, major dude, but all he's remembered for is the disaster of, like, Super Train and Pink Lady and Jeff on uh, NBC. In the meantime, he also did different strokes of Facts of Life and yeah. Hill Street Blues. But um, that's first and foremost is Super Train and then the Jiggle TV of Charlie's Angels and Three's Company, which, as Aaron said, really was 
just porno for television. And as a kid, so I was probably eight, I guess, when uh, Three's Company started, seven turning eight. And um, it was the phenomenon that we talked about growing up in the 70s as kids and being, you know, so terribly damaged <laughs> and defined by the hypersexual culture all around us. I mean, I, I mean, I grew up in New York City, uh, you know, when you would go see a Broadway play and, and prostitutes would just attack your car like, you know, uh, like animals at Warner Brothers uh, Jungle Habitat over in New Jersey. And um, so you'd watch these shows and Three's Company was one and, and certainly Charles Angel. But more than that, I remember the Love Boat, the initial TV movies really looked like porno films. Oh, yeah. And I'll put ads for some of this on the Facebook page. I found another one. There was a movie I stayed up to watch called, or like, like I marked it all. I was like, Wait, this is, it's going to be it. They're going to show nudity. It was another ABC, because ABC was the Jiggle Channel, was the rock and roll Jiggle Channel at the time. And uh, it was called Three on a Date. And I was like, this is it. They're going to show nudity. And this belief lasted, I would say, I remember in 1981, watching the only episode I ever watched of Knott's Landing. Because the three ladies went to the beach, and apparently on the commercial, I saw them getting harassed by bikers. And I said, okay, this is it. This is going to be the very special episode where, uh, you know, Knott's Landing goes full I, Claudius and delivers what we've been waiting for. And 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 the thing that made Three's Company, be, uh, Three's Company palatable was John Ritter's innocence and sweetness and lovability. And his uh, very much, and yeah. he was a master of wacky physical shtick. But he was just this very lovable, uh, sweet guy who who could, like we're saying, sell essentially pornography to the masses. And I was thinking, yeah. Mike, about my my ex girlfriend, who I remember telling me as a kid, her and her best friend when they were like ten years old were inspired by Three's Company. <laughs> to become prostitutes they they decided like <laughs> they saw a three's company episode about a prostitute who said it's a good way to make a living it's but what's wrong with it? and they were like yes we're going to be prostitutes so it, it really wow. it really was a show with an agenda as the uh as the uh <laughs> right-wing christians were always <laughs> accusing in the 80s yeah and, and it worked yeah. and it worked yeah. yes it, it was successful like my father making me tear up mad magazines with him telling me they were subversive he was completely he right. Was right yes he was correct yeah. i was subverted um oh i, I wanted but, to throw this oh, out to you real quick um so when we talk about these john ritter movies his his film career i wondered uh should we have like uh saying instead of thumbs up or thumbs down could we say the movie was a hitter or a shitter? How, how about that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. A okay, Ritter perfect. hitter or yes. a Ritter Love shitter? It. Okay. Yeah, we could do that. <laughs> we, we have complete uh, creative control okay. over crackpots. <laughs> okay, great. So, um, yeah, let's jump in. So, so Ritter uh, will begin with uh, Americathon. And this is a, a rich film, contextually and, and uh, culturally, for Mr. Lee and myself. Uh, the product of an avant-garde comedy troupe, best known for their surrealistic uh, pothead records, the Firesign Theater, led by Philip Proctor and Peter Bergman. And they were uh, they wrote, um, prior to this, they had worked on a movie called Tunnel Vision, 
which was a spoof of uh, a TV network. And it was a lot of ad promos and fake game shows inspired by the groove to one of, of several movies like that, which uh, we will de- do an episode on that called Kentucky Fried Failures, uh, because the, the greatest of them, of course, was the Conf- Kentucky Fried movie. But Tunnel Vision is pretty good. It's okay. Uh, the, the weird thing about Tunnel Vision and the 70s is that my parents, who were, you know, conservative, uh, but, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn. They were fans of Woody Allen. So I remember once they went to go see, there was a revival of everything you always wanted to know about sex. And they went to go see, it was probably 1974 or five. Or whenever Tunnel Vision came out. And um, the second feature was Tunnel Vision. And uh, I actually asked my mother if she remembered it, and she did not. But the thought of my mother watching Pregnant Man, which was one of the bits on Tunnel Vision, was really, it's uh, it's something. And it says a lot about the 70s. The other weirdest movie my parents ever went to on a date was Mondo Kane. Oh, wow. In a theater? In a theater because of the song. Because you know more wow. in the banana. Did, because the song was nominated for an Oscar. Yeah. And, did you uh, did you, you know, get their review? Uh my father liked it. My mother um she said she remembered the song. So oh, what a date. You know, movie. I don't know. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it, that was like what was playing back. You know, that oh, was before, yeah. you know, faces of death and stuff. So No, we've talked about you my know. dad coming home from the drive in telling me about hard soap. <laughs> Saying uh, I wait, saw excuse me. It's hard soap, hard soap. <laughs> hard soap, hard soap. My dad <laughs> when, when I'm in like fifth grade coming home, saw a movie, hard soap, hard soap. <laughs> An X-rated uh, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman parody. One of like at least two. There's another one. Oh my god! I can't think of the name of it. Yeah, I'm sure it's like Mary Hardman or something. But yeah, yeah. So our parents were seeing weird stuff in the 70s and not in any way considering it unusual or uh, no. bizarre. But I want to stress, you know, Aaron's father is like kind of embodies what we're going to get to, which is the dirty bum culture, which was our main male influence in the 70s. Yes. So it's guys wearing, you know, free mustache ride t-shirts, having the mustache built for riding, you know, the ball hugger cut off shorts. If they're laughing, wearing a shirt. Long hair. If they're wearing yeah, a shirt. Oh, never the shirt. Yeah, yeah, the shirt was never on. And so what they were were basically baby boomers who had been a little too young for, you know, Woodstock and full psychedelic flower power and then came of age in the 70s with national lampoon and Cheech and chong and the first five years of saturday night live so good time uh, guys always good time guys good time guys of the 70s until september 11th changed everything (laughs) and then they became (laughs) bad time guys but not even not even september 11 2001 september 11th 1980 (laughs) when they when they debuted the new saturday night live with a cast of other people oh oh uh, fuck that but <laughs> but um so but i want to stress you know my father was a green beret in a vietnam and my mother was a kindergarten teacher i had very different parents um but the 70s was a weird time and so we're coming out of the 70s into the 80s where uh you know Uncle Ronnie Rambozo, as the boys would call him contemptu- contemptuously, and then went and voted for him twice, yes. um, was coming in office. And uh, America Thon embodies that moment for the filthy animals. 
And so it, the premise is, you know, weirdly prescient. Uh, it's all about the energy crisis, which if you grew up in the 70s was a defining fact of your life, the energy crisis. Do you remember the Mad Magazine cover, Mad Salutes the Energy Crisis? Oh, was it him? What, what was it? What was the cover? It was a really cool painting because it was the one time Alfred like ever looked like an adult. He was up on a roof, real small, and there were just giant neon lights spelling out, Mad Salutes <laughs> the Energy Crisis. That's great. <laughs> Which really is a bit of a leap for like, you know, just a still painted image. Sure. But, I'm still we're still laughing. Yeah. Um but you know gas lines and OPEC and you know fat cat uh what was the the what was the oil uh consortium called OPEC. I just said it. Yeah, there. OPEC, yeah. Anyway, so the um Americathon so written by Proctor Bergman of the Firesign Theater and I saw it I did not see it in the theater. I did I was waiting to see something else at the uh, Middletown Sevenplex in New Jersey, and Americathon got out. And I used to always like to ask people when they were leaving, "How was it? How was it?" And so these two teenagers were coming out, and I asked them, well, "How was it?" And one guy rolled his eyes and angrily snarled, "Oh, it was great, especially the thirty seconds of Elvis Costello." And he was because justified was a, in his frustration because that was a big yeah. part of the ad campaign was Elvis big Costello. Big part of the ad campaign was a live performance by Elvis Costello, yeah. And Meatloaf. So, and, yeah. Yeah, well, you, you get a lot of Meatloaf. He's not singing, but he's delivering the goods. But well, uh, anytime we'll get you get any Meatloaf, you get a lot of Meatloaf. <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> um. But so as a result, I then spent years saying that when people, whenever the movie came up, it's like, oh, yeah. Great, especially the 30 seconds of Elvis <laughs> Costello. You dined out but on that better, line. <laughs> I did. But better than that um, was uh, they aired America Thought in 1982 on the ABC Friday Night movie. And I remember watching it. I was 13. And I saw in the credits, you know, based on a play by Phil Proctor and Peter Bergman. So the next day I'm talking to my cousin Andy, um, who was a girl, Andy who's a year younger than me, she's like, did you watch Americathon? I was like, yeah. She said, I, th I thought it was pretty good. I said, yeah, it was all right, but the play was much better. <laughs> as though I, at 13, in uh, at Our Lady Help of Christian School in Brooklyn, had seen the stage production of Americathon. You know what's funny? You couldn't have possibly been correct. Like, can you imagine how awful <laughs> the, the stage play. production yeah. of Americathon yeah. was? <laughs> Oh, with like their Uncle Sam paper hats oh, and kazoos. God. <laughs> so uh, the premise of the movie is America has gone broke. The Chinese own everything. They got big into capitalism. Everybody lives in their cars because there's no more gasoline. And America has been borrowing from a consortium of Native American tribes led by... Uh, Chief Dan George is the guy in who is in charge, who holds the mortgage on America. And since America is broke, they hire a TV consultant played by, oh, what's his name? His name is McMurkin. A lot of funny names in this movie. And Roger Ebert pointed out once that uh, if a movie has funny names for its characters, it's never funny, except for the, <laughs> the Marx Brothers. And then it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and then so, Rufus T. Firefly makes you piss your pants <laughs> in laughter. 
<laughs> until it gets until it gets ruined by Rob Zombie. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Um, so John Ritter is the star. He's not really the he's the protagonist. Peter Rieger as McMurkin is the prota- protagonist who comes up with the idea that America should have a thirty day telethon to raise money, and something that the the filthy animals of the seventies were obsessed with was the Jerry Lewis telethon. And, and it, it yes, absolutely. And and I just want to say it is weird with Peter Rigert as the lead nominally, like you're saying. His yeah. the movie is being narrated in a voiceover by George Carlin as Peter Rigert in the future, past the future of the movie. So that that's right. a so so honestly, a lot of Rigert's scenes are done in voiceover from George Carlin as future Rigert. Yeah, and, and we should not. So Carlin is a big part of the movie, and his narration is great. It is yeah. hilarious. The gags he's given are hilarious. His delivery is great. And I believe you had a theory that I would buy into about that. That it was, that, well, there's a lot of things that this movie has in common with uh, Mike Judge's idiocracy. It's kind of a kind of an idiocracy for the late 70s and similarly prescient. But also like idiocracy, it seems to have been uh edited and a voiceover added after the fact it, it seemed it seemed you really get the impression that the entire movie was chopped up in an attempt to save it they said let's just put on a really funny voiceover and and it is really funny like we said like his it jokes works. are great yeah. and it starts the movie starts with a completely startling gag where uh <laughs> george carlin well hang on Let, okay yeah, all first, right okay. Well, first he starts with He's like, this is 25 million years ago. So talking about fossil fuels. And so we see the, some stop-motion animated dinosaurs fighting. And he goes, those guys aren't around anymore. The problem was they were no brains and all teeth, which leads us to this guy. And then it cuts to Jimmy Carter, who at this point was the United president of the United States. Was currently in office when the film yeah. was released. And then he says, you know, he didn't know what he was doing. Until an angry mob broke into the White House and lynched the President of the United States along with three or four of his snottier cabinet members. Now, here's the shocker. They show them being lynched. Yes, and they show the corpses (laughs) swinging. Swing, yeah. Really, Mike, is there any other movie in history that depicts the killing of a president who was currently in office? I'm trying to think if, if there possibly, I don't think there is. Uh, no, I'll put that question out on social media. It's got to be. I'm, I don't know if there's been since then either. I think it's got to be just America's on. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was that like assassination of George Bush movie that came out. Oh, about, you know, when George W. Bush was in office. OK, OK. But you have to. Yeah, it takes it, it took that long and it had to be the centerpiece of the movie it had to be the title of the movie. Whereas this is just just a throwaway gag, yeah, showing like these five guys in suits getting nooses put around their neck, and, you know, you know, and hanged. The, the only thing even close I could think of that popped in my head was that Sasha Baron Cohen movie that came out in 2016 before Trump was elected that ended with the shock gag of a drop of AIDS blood being flung into Donald Trump's mouth. <laughs> that's, that's, the, <laughs> do you remember that? That moved the no. brothers 
it was that terrible oh, yeah, Sasha, yeah, that, yeah. Sasha Baron Cohen, The Brothers. No, I never saw. Oh, I can't remember. I did. I saw it in the theater. I was the only one in the theater, and that yeah. was the end. The shocking end gag of the movie. But yeah, it's despite despite Rebel Wilson playing his wife. Uh, that's a hole in my Rebel Wilson. Uh, oh boy, filmography completion. So yeah, so America thought yeah, wakes you right gag, up huh? with that. Funny, funny stuff, Sasha. Uh, yeah. Oh, there's a lot of funny stuff in that one, Mike. There's a lot of funny stuff. <laughs> Oh boy! <laughs> so, um, so that Ritter, the center of the of the show here, and the, and, and and the heart of this film plays President Chet Roosevelt, which uh, that is a very funny name, and he's like a swinging new age with it young guy, a spoof of then first-time Governor Jerry Brown of California, who dated Linda Ronstadt and partied with the Eagles and was known as Governor Moonbeam. So he's that kind of guy. He he's, describes himself as cosmically directed. And he's always getting, like, rolfed and things like that. And, um, you know, uh, and it's Ritter. And super likable, uh, but not given a ton to do here, except just, you know, kind of be the likable center of this movie. Yeah, and uh, and really, and doesn't have a lot of his trademark physical stuff. Has one big set piece with uh, Zane Busby as Mulling Jackson. Uh, one big. Yeah, let's get to her in a minute. Yeah, sure. One big. That's his one big physical set piece. But otherwise, yes, it's more just the joke of seventies Los Angeles blissed out John Ritter, which, by the way, he really did embody that. I mean, I was thinking how the yes. opening of this movie. With a great Beach Boys song, um, it's a beautiful uh, day. A beautiful killer day, song. killer song. song. It, the opening looks like the opening of Three's Company. It, it, it's got the yeah. same like we're at Venice Beach, you know, with everybody roller skating yeah. by, and and yeah, and Ritter really did embody that. So it, so that's it's just that Ritter as the president of the United States, who instead of calling instead of a first lady has my old lady. That's what she's always introduced that's right. as, played by his real old lady. At the time. That is crazy. I did and, not uh, know that. And another funny gag is that they, he lives in the Western White House, which is a condo in Marina Del Rey, which is so 70s and hilarious. Um, so uh, outside the White House, uh, the Western White House, there are constant protests. And there's one, uh, uh, the guy, we see somebody who rather prominent. Do you know who it was, Aaron? Well, spoiler, you told me last time, Larry David, and well, I didn't recognize him. And I didn't see him and uh, and put it together. So he was on Fridays at this point, right? Yeah. And along with Bruce Mahler, they played these stuntmen rabbis, you know, uh, in like James Bond spoofs, like you should only live twice. And <laughs> that's you know, funny. They went, they, yeah, they drove there. They drove a motorcycle with a sidecar through a uh, flaming bagel and crashed through a wall of matzo. Oh, my God. I don't remember that at all. That's great. Yeah, completely hilarious. But, yeah, so Larry David is doing his Friday's rabbi character. He's holding up a sign that says, the president is a yutz. <laughs> and so uh, then we get to the telethon. And this is this is the big premise. Now, Fred Willard is the chief of staff, and it turns out he's a turncoat He's working for the enemies of America. He just wants to get a big payday. There's an Arab-Israeli secret deal being made. He's in on that. The Israeli uh, diplomat is played by uh, the great Alan Arbus, uh, Deanne Arbus' ex-husband, star of Greaser's Palace, uh, the Robert Downey Sr. film. And 
Fred Will Fred Will is very good, and but the real, I mean, just devastating hilarity in this movie comes from Harvey Corman as Monty Rushmore, the guy they choose to host this thirty day telethon, and he plays the star of a sitcom called Both Father and Mother, and this is like not just the funniest part of the movie. It's like one of the funniest things I may have ever seen in my life. Yeah, it's pretty hilarious. Pretty great. And it and it is something that it's an outrageous gag that I don't even want to spoil it, but the the idea is that uh Harvey Corman is has like this I don't know how old the kid is, maybe like 10 or 12. He's got this son and he's a crossdresser. But the kid doesn't have so he the the kid does not have a mother. The mother's not a hand. So he dresses up as the mother, but also is the kid's father at the same time. And it leads to a shock ending. That's And I have to say, it's as funny as any SCTV gag, uh, sketch. And that's my favorite TV show of all time. But it has that, you know, complete like National Lampoon decadence and nihilism and viciousness that you'd never pick up on an SCTV. And uh, that is the, that to me was the high point of the movie. And then Harvey takes it from there and is hilarious throughout. He's great. And I love um, so the the American Indian Consortium that runs everything does it th- by taking over Nike, which they changed to the National Indian Knitting Enterprise. And everybody is wearing Nike uh, sweatsuits and sneakers. Another like prescient moment. And Harvey hosts the Americathon in a nike tuxedo which is incredibly cool looking it's just a tuxedo with the two nike stripes down the side and you know there's also a scene where peter Riegert is just standing around in a black hoodie and it, it made me realize like you didn't really see that in the late 70s you didn't really see a guy hanging no, out in a hoodie yeah. and he looked so cool and he looked so uh 2020 <laughs> you know so yes yeah, a very prescient movie yeah, no, that was what people literally, they, you only wore that to work out. You know, right. Running had become the big thing. That was the only time you ever wore that stuff. And by the way, with uh, all the things we've talked about that this movie predicted, um, you know, one that doesn't get mentioned as often as someone is living in L.A. right now is the whole thing of like everybody lives in their cars. When you drive around L.A. right now, the homeless crisis we're having, it, it, it that felt authentic and prescient as well. And hilarious, I would imagine. Oh, Laughing. just oh, just <laughs> delightful to watch a city's entire structure collapse, and uh, yeah, just hilarious. But I, I want to say something. So you know, culturally, the the both father and mother sketch in the movie is something that would have just shocked and appalled the moral majority and the right wing censorious types of the late seventies, early eighties, and now. Uh, it would specifically shock the woke contingent, the left-wing people who are out to stamp out and deplatform any ideas that threatens their sense of morality. So there's a lot of that in this movie, you know, and, it, and you see it often when you go back to comedies of the 70s. And uh, this is one of the best and funniest examples, that little two-minute gag, not the whole movie. It's, because it, pretty soon after that, the movie sails downhill. It is, it is funny, though, that it's a very 70s joke, and, and they sh- certainly did it in National Lampoon a thousand times. The idea that uh, it, it is a conservative message, the, the joke, which is it's really saying sitcoms are so kind of decadent already. And in the future, can you imagine how 
quote depraved unquote they'll be you know so 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 it is a very kind of 70s conceit that yes it you're right it was to be an outrageous outrage conservatives joke but it's also a yeah. conservative joke which is yeah, like I, oh god yes it is but i i certainly don't think that was the motivation no the motivation it, yes. was to was to have this this bit of shock humor but it was a very which 70s inherently thought. at that point at that point would have been seen as a blow against the forces of censorship which were you know way dominated by the right wing and and conservatives particularly as reagan was coming into office you know backed so uh vocally and and visibly by the religious right you know to the point that that's where the term the religious right comes from but boy don't you wish there really had been that show for corman how amazing would that have been oh i mean he's just so yeah. great he's so funny in yeah. every every time he's on screen he is so hilarious and it's interesting. He's a very interesting guy because I always thought he was just fine in the uh, Mel Brooks movies, just fine on Carol Burnett. Um, I recently watched him again in Lord Love a Duck, and he's very good. But he's being Harvey Corman, and this is this really is his star turn. Uh, this is a real tour de force. The the end of the movie really is his host taking over the telethon, and and um, yeah, it's a real yeah, it's a real. It, it's hardcoreman, I would say. <laughs> yeah. So that's the only okay, thing you can describe it as. It's 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 a long way to that big ending, though, which is very funny. And this is where the movie doesn't work. The telethon itself, I suppose, mirroring the actual Jerry Lewis telethon, <laughs> is, is a, boring <laughs> and yes, goes not on well forever. mounted. Yeah, um, you know, uh, funny in theory, in description, but actually yeah. like annoying and painful to sit through and one of the key moments in that is zane busby as vietnamese punk rock star mooling jackson and what's interesting about like the dirty bums is that they never get punk right except weirdly cheech and chong doing eric my eye as a proto-punk yeah they they got and it then, right and then bringing it to life with the actual punks in up in smoke but they got it but everybody else is always wrong. And this is really a, a just an unfunny character, poorly played by Zane Busby, who is a fascinating figure. And, and in all fairness, she is. And I, I don't want to sidestep too long. But in all fairness, Cheech and Chong only got it right because they were so high and so fucked up. <laughs> and they were trying to make fun of Alice Cooper. And they were so high right. that they did that wrong. And it came out punk. So... <laughs> But yeah, Zane Busby, also of Up in Smoke, uh, of uh, a notorious scene where she uh, whines and yells about wanting quaaludes endlessly. She wants um, ludes hilariously, yeah. And, and Zane Busby, to me, uh, an incredible actress and comedian, not super funny. I don't think I ever laughed once watching, but you can't stop watching her. She's such a unique presence and so bizarre and disturbing and amazing um that she's she's great but but more more chilling than funny i would say yeah and you know appropriately that she plays the inexplicably demon-possessed woman in national lampoon's class reunion another terribly unfunny character there in a completely unfunny movie uh she's in spinal tap and this amazed me she co-wrote and directed the 1986 charles gordon uh, groden movie the last resort which i've never seen me neither 
And I want us to, we, we got to watch that and Movers and Shakers, which is sort of uh, Groden's The Player. Oh, and I've wow. never seen it, but I understand it's like the, it's a, you know, prototype of uh, adaptation. He was hired to write a movie. It may have even been The Joy of Sex. It may have been the National Lampoon's Joy of Sex. He was wow. And didn't write it, but instead wrote a movie about his attempt to write the movie. Oh yeah, I, I, see I don't that. know. I mean, I don't know if I'm right about that, but it it was something like that. So we'll be doing a, a Groden thon at some point, and uh, we could say if something's uh, Groden or Grody, Grody or Grody or Groovin. Grody, yeah, perfect. There yeah. you go. Okay, <laughs> but but Busby, you want to talk about incredible career turns? She is now a has won a CNN Hero Award for her uh, work uh, raising money for Holocaust survivors. And working with Mel Gibson to uh, bring uh, Holocaust survivors finances. It's incredible. So she's a, she's an amazing figure. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, amazingly unfunny as Zane Busby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, none of that works. Um, it doesn't even work like as offensive stereotyping, which you could kind of watch now and go, oh, my. Right. Because she's just sort of not, she's not recognizably Vietnamese or, or any kind of ethnicity. Uh, least of all punk rock. Um, so the cameos are very uh, impressive, very of the time. Meatloaf beats up America's last car. Peter Marshall from Hollywood Squares is the most trusted news anchor in America. That's a very funny gag. Sybil Shepard, who I didn't recognize, plays the gold girl. Jay Leno beats up his mother in a boxing match. A, a, you know, a bit that probably would have worked on a fireside theater record, but does not work here. Yep. Uh, uh, Tommy Lasorda's in it. The Del Rubio triplets and Body by Jake. Remember that guy? Yes, Body by Jake. And did did you mention Howard Hessman? Remember, did, did you say Hessman? Oh, how you, could we not? Great Howard Hessman yeah. and and Dorothy Stratton in a non speaking role, who will come up in another movie we discuss. Yeah, the late yeah incredible seventies cast. And so, um, you know, and it's loaded with. Cute little inside gags. There's a list of ventriloquist acts, one of which is Procter and Bergman. But it really, it runs out of gas, fittingly, early on, until uh, Harvey floors it at the end, and it, and it comes around. And then Carlin's wrap-up, kind of where are they now, uh, narration is hilarious. I especially liked when he said that uh, John Ritter and Fred Willard ran off to the Philippines, or Thailand, rather, and started a disco religion. And they show them on the cover of Disco Boys magazine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, those guys had a lot of fun with disco sucking at the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, America Thon, I-, I think it's a must-see. Uh, Roger Ebert wrote a, like, a complete meltdown. I hated, hated, hated this movie review. But he did cite another film we're going to have to hunt down from 1969 called The Virgin President. Never heard of it. Can't believe I'm so happy we're discovering still can discover new movies. So the Virgin President is on our radar. So I am going to say that this is uh, a hitter. Yeah, me too. Me too. Enough good gags and just a yeah. just a fun uh trip to the to a seventies film when the vision of the future uh still involved like in the future we'll still have print magazines and uh, color bars on TV with the traditional aspect ratio and rotary phones. I mean, it's just, 
this is the yeah this is the kind of thing i you just gotta love to watch Uh, just for the parade of of great comedy figures of the 70s too yeah all right so let's move along the very same year john ritter had another now this is a legitimate leading man role a uh, movie called Hero at Large, which is a film that I somehow ended up seeing three times in the theater, strictly because it was rated PG. And this was like among the last, so I was 11 at the time, so this was like among the last times my parents could really control me from like not sneaking into R-rated movies. Uh, I saw it once because I, I wanted to see it. It looked good. It looked like a kid's movie. They sold it as a kid's movie. It's not really a kid's movie. I'm not quite sure what it is. Uh, and I thought it was okay, and then I saw it again because uh, we were all from school, and my mother wanted me and my brother to get out of the house, so she sent us to the movies. And then I saw it a third time at the Dollar Theater in Keensburg, New Jersey, the legendary Colonial across the street from the boardwalk, uh, because it was there, and it was the middle of winter, and I was visiting my uncle down there, and uh, it was a dollar. And it, it, it brought to mind a phenomenon of the dollar theater and our obsession as kids, at least on my end, that the studios or the theaters cut out parts of the movie once it got to the second and third run theaters. Like, if you're not paying full price, we're taking out a piece of the movie. We're not giving you the full movie. And, you know, I know that sounds ridiculous now, but but other kids talked about it. Because I remember, like, there was a, in uh, the Rockaways, there was a theater on the boardwalk and every year they would show jaws and they were like legendary because they had 50 cent matinees and i asked my friend did they cut anything and he just said yeah one scene but it wasn't very important and it's like i don't know what the scene from jaws was that they, they might have cut that wasn't important but um but don't you think thing is, growing though, up in the 70s like as a kid you were all i was always hearing from fellow kids about how everything was rigged how every i i, yeah, I, I was yeah. told by my cousin gary don't play pinball machines. All that money goes to the mafia, and they ri- they put in magnets to pull the ball down. Like it, everything was yeah. mafia controlled. It, you know, yeah. yes, it, it was a big part of being a kid. Was oh, it's all a yeah. scam. It's all a ripoff. And then cut was always a big part of everything. When we, oh, that movie's cut. You know, which then led to like you know, as horror fans in the eighties, the outrage against the mpa <laughs> right yes cut uncut can't believe i'm getting the uncut version which right. was just like more like you know caro syrup and like you know mashed up hamburger on the screen but we were acting like oh they're they're denying us snuff films when they cut you know 30 seconds from the burning um, uh, I, hope Her- I, swear- I hope hero at large did have full frontal ritter nudity and you know I, i'd <laughs> like love to find that out someday that those kids were right ritter <laughs> hero at large was cut but here's the thing when i saw it keithburg i could have sworn there was a scene cut from it and i think it was part of the scene where he's at city hall which is a big turning point of the movie which makes no sense so i'm sure i rewrote that in my head much like i imagined seeing uh robbie benson <laughs> graphically sodomized on the NBC broadcast of Ode to Billy Joe. Oh my God. Which never happened. I wrote that in my 12 year old head. Wow. But uh, that's a side note. Um, so the premise of this movie is uh, Ritter is Steve Nichols. He's an up and coming act, struggling actor in the West Village in New York City. And he gets a gig 
playing Captain Avenger, where the Captain Avenger movie is going to open in all the neighborhood theaters, and they have an army of actors dressed as Captain Avenger who stand outside the theater and greet people and shake their hands and you know tell them to eat their vegetables and what have you. And clearly and, this was inspired by the Superman movie coming out the year before, and so the screenwriter getting right. an idea like, oh, a guy hired to, he becomes a real hero. Yeah. Right. So in his Captain Avenger outfit, he then breaks up a robbery in a bodega, and you know they act like, "Oh, this is the real Captain Avenger. He's alive. He's among us." And something that drove me crazy as a kid is that Ritter in no way looks like the big muscular blonde guy in the Captain Avenger movie. But then I guess maybe that was the point: is that we can, we all get to be heroes at some point. And I love that uh, that, from- that blonde guy. I loved it. I looked on the poster for Captain Avenger in the movie, and his name is Ryan McGraw. Which is such, oh, a, good, right. yeah, yeah, such yeah. a good 70s portmanteau uh, name yeah. of, uh, yeah. Ryan O'Neill and Allie McGraw exactly. from Love Story. That's yes. right. Yeah. yeah. God, who are they trying to amuse with that one? Who was getting a gig, a, you know, just a bang when they saw that one? <laughs> Ryan O'Neill. Ryan O'Neill. Oh, <laughs> he must have been in the theater. Yeah. The popcorn's <laughs> flying out of his nose. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, dying laughing. Punching Allie McGraw. somebody. <laughs> Allie McGraw saying all the dirty words she said in the story. Uh, as parodied in Mad Max. Oh, the foul mouth, Allie McGraw, yes. <laughs> yeah, what, what, she, what so, did she say in Love Story? Shit or something? Oh, it, it is nonstop. Because I, I saw Love Story not that long ago. Really? And, and the, it, yeah, Love because it was on cable. Whenever I last had cable, it was within the last five years. Is she that it's, foul mouth? It's kind of shocking. She says shit, bullshit. It's It's... It's rather uh, abrasive. I, I gotta wow. say, I'm fucking yeah. dying here. I am <laughs> fucking dying. No, you know, because she's bullshit. supposed to be like earthy and and spirited. Right. And he's this uptight wasp, and right. Yeah. So she's like, "Oh, don't give me that shit, you son of a bitch!" <laughs> like that. That's like every line. Yeah. And there's like a scene where she's like teaching kids in church, like in a choir, and. Uh, she tells this one kid, like, he's not blending his voice. He's like, I'm sick of your bullshit, Timmy. <laughs> Cut the shit and get back in line and get in <laughs> It's like, wow. Wow. Mad Magazine was right. She was Mad Magazine was right, as was John Wayne in his legendary Playboy interview where he said, you know, people liked Love Story because it was, uh, you know, it was a love story. That's what they related to. It had nothing to do with a pretty girl saying shit the whole time. <laughs> I don't know if the Duke was right on that one, but I know uh, Mad Magazine noticed. But speaking of that, there's a scene at the beginning where you, we see Ritter and another woman. They're walking on a crowded street in the village, and they're talking about how she's missed her period. She's pregnant, and she says, like, oh, shit, Steve. And then they, they kind of break, and I never realized this at the time when I, I until just recently watching Hero at Large. They were actors, both of them are actors, and they're running lines from a scene that they're going to perform. I just thought that Steve had gotten this woman pregnant, because that's what dudes did in the 70s if they didn't have vasectomies, and they just never got back to it. Just, there was going to be like a little, I never even thought of it, because that's just, you know, how cavalier sex was among adults in my mind. Sure. Um, But also interesting that she would say shit, because in the 70s, you had to have like, because you could. You had to have people saying shit and all kinds of foul language. And if you doubt that, look at a movie like Chomps, the Hanna-Barbera oh, robotic yeah. canine movie, where the last scene is a black dog in a stereotypical black voice going, shit. <laughs> <laughs> 
And not to mention, like we've talked about, nudity in PG-rated movies. And yeah, the yeah. 70s was a wild time. It was a wild time. Yeah. Although this no is... No nudity in Hero at Large, though. Well, Unless pretty, it was cut. pretty yeah. darn close, though. I mean, Ritter does spend the entire movie in a <laughs> towel or his underwear, and he's tidy whities. He, he's not yeah. in bad shape, but he's not in great shape either. And I don't know why he's so constantly <laughs> undressed in this movie for scenes where he really does. Other than, other than possibly uh, the fact that. He's such a bum in this movie. He's just living <laughs> off of Ann Archer, the love interest, uh, living on her couch, mooching off of her. He's broke. He's kidding on his apartment. And, and I guess maybe to drive home what a irresponsible bum this guy is, he's walking around in his underwear <laughs> and a towel constantly. Which, which certainly comes across. Because as likable as Ritter is, this is an annoying character. Yes, Particularly in regard to the Ann Archer uh, character who lives across the hallway from him and he just crashes on her couch, just kind of charms his way in when he he gets padlocked out because he hasn't paid rent on his apartment. And she doesn't seem to like him much. And it it really is. It it did get to a point to me where it was kind of hilarious. The now that we're now we all kind of make fun of the romantic comedy cliche of like, hey, woman, you don't like me, the man. But I'm going to turn you around and we go, oh, this is actually kind of weird and stalkery, right? It's not romantic. And this is this is really she's saying to him, I really don't like you. Please over and over again. Please leave me alone. Please stop physically cornering me places. uh, (laughs) But it's Ritter and he's got that bright smile. And so it's supposed to be fun and sweet. And doing the doing the Chinese accent when I try to order Chinese food. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. Um. So he becomes, as Captain Avenger, Ritter goes out, and then he's, he just sort of becomes a friendly, low-level vigilante. You know, he uh, busts up a mugging on the subway. And, you know, it, uh, growing up in the late 70s of New York City, we were we were aching for such a character. I, when he arrived, it was in the form of Bernie Getz, who would not have a romantic comedy built around him. But uh, this was the sort of uh, Hollywood fantasy version of that. And... It then takes a turn where Bert Convey, as the head of the mayor's re-election, uh, re-election campaign, wants to use Captain Avenger to score votes. And Convey, who is best known as a game show host uh, of Password, Super super Password, excuse me, and Tattletales, is really good here. And I recently saw him in Semi-Tough, where the 1978 football movie with Burt Reynolds Chris Christopherson, Joe Clayburg. And in that movie, he plays a parody of Werner Erhard, the founder of S, the self-help movement where they call you a fucking asshole and, you know, don't let you piss. And, and he's brilliant in that. I mean, sh- he shocked me in that, how good he was. And it's like, why did this guy choose to host game shows instead of be a movie star? But I'm glad he did make these couple of movies. And he's he's good here. I mean, he's not really sleazy or evil because nothing in the movie is that hard-edged. Um, it does bring to mind that maybe this would have worked in the 40s with Frank Capra and Gary Cooper. Uh, but it's the 70s, so we have to have people saying shit. Um, and it just it really doesn't work. It's, it's very slight and... You know, not it. I wasn't bored exactly, but it wasn't uh, registering with me as anything I'd remember. 
Right. And it is supposed, like you said, it is supposed to be this Capra esque, like people come to believe in uh, Captain Avenger, but then he sells them out by doing this for money and he's exposed in that big city hall scene, like you said. And, and, and he, there's a big crowd gathered and they're saying, Captain Avenger, is it true? Is it true? Were you just doing this all for money? Are you a fraud? And he's trying to tell them, like, no, 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 I do stand for something. And there's a shot of an old man in the crowd <laughs> with tears streaming down his face. This guy is weeping. That really drove home to me, like, wow, did they not earn this close-up? Like, the idea that someone is is erect over Captain I'm Avenger... Having been a child in that combat zone era of New York City, I felt that man's pain at the time and again when we visited. Were you weeping? Were you weeping during that scene and you're afraid to tell me? You can be vulnerable. It's all right. I'm, I'm weeping now that we're talking about it. Yes. Yeah, I, I really, that was the part of the movie I laughed the hardest at, I have to say. <laughs> so there's a big, you know, Captain Avenger, uh, except he's not Captain Avenger at this point. It's just Steve Nichols rescues rescues a child from a burning building. It looks completely fake and feels completely fake, and but you know, inoffensive enough. And uh, I hate to call this a shitter because that's <laughs> you too know what? harsh. Call it a shitter. Go ahead. But call it's, it it's, a it's you know, it's a, it's a, I'll call it a, a it's it's a farter. It's a gassy uh, <laughs> visit to the bowl. It's not quite a shitter. But if we only have hitters and shitters, it's a shitter. Yeah, man, I'm gonna I'm gonna go that too. Yeah, yes. According to the old Siskel Ebert thumbs up, thumbs down rule, sometimes you got to say shitter. I'm not angry about it, but yeah. that's what it is. Yeah, maybe sometimes I'd say I wish I could give this a thumbs sideways. So like, what would that be? I wish I could just give this like a painful case of gas. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and now uh, a movie I believe we are going to split on. They all laughed from 1981, uh, the film that broke writer-director Peter Bogdanovich, one of the brightest lights of the new Hollywood movement of the 70s, who became a major culture, cultural figure after the last picture show, Paper Moon and What's Up, Doc, uh, and then had a series of disastrous bombs, starting with Daisy Miller in 1974, followed by At Long Last Love in 75, a movie we will talk about at some point nickelodeon where somehow he botched a period comedy and this is in 76 where people are obsessed with old hollywood he's got burt reynolds the biggest star in the world reunited with or i'm sorry united with his reuniting stars of paper moon ryan and tatum o'neill and saint jack which is a good movie but certainly uh nothing the public was interested in seeing so he followed up with this intensely personal film. They all laughed. And for reasons other than the movie itself, no distributor would touch it. So he decided to distribute himself and lost every penny he had ever made, along with all the goodwill he had built up over the first half of the 70s. And I think we should we should do all those movies and call it the Bomb Donovich show at some point. Yeah. So I would love the story to watch this. Be behind uh they all laughed was or haunting every frame of they all laughed the reason why people would not release it or or and then when it was released not go to see it was that the blonde ingenue dorothy stratton who was bogdanovich's girlfriend at the time of filming had also been the playboy playmate of the year 
brutally murdered by her husband, Eric Schneider, uh, in part over Schneider's jealousy that she was dating Bogdanovich before they had even divorced, as well as having an affair with uh, Hugh Hefner of Playboy. And the the murder is as gruesome as murders get. He used a shotgun on her. He, he violated the corpse sexually and then used the shotgun on him on himself. And one of my favorite gags, my favorite episode of the documentary now series is the parody of the thin blue line where um, Fred Armisen plays the most annoying man in the world, the jazz guitar aficionado. Mm-hmm. And his uh, brother is talking about why they threw him out of the house uh, just because he was so annoying. And the, the, his sister-in-law says, he explained the murder of Dorothy Stratton to our 11-year-old son. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So Dorothy Stratton, even now, lingers in the popular consciousness. And this was, you know, her big showcase film. Um, and so that is just dripping all over this. And it's very gruesome and haunting to watch as a result. And um, she's 19 years old. I mean, she is. Yeah. yeah she's I, or was she even 18 in this? Actually? Well, well she, no, I guess she must have been. 19, she was 19. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she really, I mean, you know, my impression of her is she was not really an actress. She was just, and I didn't even think she was, you know, this, this hyper charismatic, uh, you know, screen goddess type, like clearly, Bogdanovich, who had also been romantically involved with Sybil Shepard. You'd see Sybil Shepard in the in uh the last picture show, you're like, wow, wow, there we go. Um but but Dorothy Stratton just kind of looked like a very pretty kid to me in this. Which makes the whole thing like creepier and leerier than ever. Plus the fact that there's a shot of Eric Schneider, her husband, who would murder her in the movie playing her husband. He doesn't have a line. We just see him in a window while she's being spied on by John Ritter. Uh, but it's it's a curious choice that Bogdanovich would choose to leave that shot in. But he did. So uh, it's a detective story that I found completely incomprehensible. So I will turn that part over to Aaron. Oh, God. Well, it's a it's a uh, it's a, a number of couples and romantic interests. Uh, it's John Ritter, who is basically playing Peter Bogdanovich. The same way that Woody Allen uses better-looking actors to play and imitate him in his movies, Ritter is literally dressed like Bogdanovich with his trademark uh, round glasses and uh, the bow tie, fo- the yeah, everything. Yeah, yes, following around Dorothy Stratton uh, and and in love with her, Ben Gazzara is uh, following around Audrey Hepburn. Um, who is married and he's the detective following her, but falling in love with her. And, and while everybody, while everyone in the movie is following everyone around, you're seeing affairs that really were happening off camera. Uh, Bogdanovich really was having an affair with Dorothy Stratton behind her husband's back. Ben Gazzara and Audrey Hepburn were having an affair behind her husband's back. And, and this whole thing is held together uh, the the whole like you said pretty nonsensical story and boy and boy the plot is, the story is not really not the point here you know, you know the detective right. it's just an excuse for romantic and screwball set pieces but uh, it's all held together by a guy named Blaine Novak the co-writer of the film uh, who when we talk about dirty bumps this this guy you've ne- embodies 
the filthy 70s dirty bum guy we're talking about like no one i've ever seen on screen honestly. no i mean beyond He's the a combination of cheech and chong cheech and chong dr johnny fever from wkrp and d <laughs> snyder with a Ackroyd big and belushi like all in one being you know long permed hair uh like that was ass half yeah. shirts a mustache that's just as long. Yes. Yeah. Roller Constantly skating. Smoking. The cigarette smoking in this movie is so vile to me. It's so constant. It's so constant. And he's always smoking as he's roller skating. Um, and he co-wrote the movie with Bogdanovich and didn't really become a, a, an actor or a writer after this. His one other major credit was a documentary called Directed by Peter Bogdanovich. An homage of sorts, I would imagine. I haven't seen it or read anything about it. To directed by John Ford, which was one of Bogdanovich's early movies, a 1972 documentary. Um, but he's he's a really weird screen presence. Blaine, his Novak. voice. If if he could, it's like this perfect amalgamation Frankenstein of so many filthy 70s icons. His voice sounds like Carlton, your doorman. Like, like the fact that he opens <laughs> yeah. his mouth and Carlton, your doorman, comes out. It's just like it's one 70s yeah. filth icon after another. And like the ball hugger cut off shorts and everything. I just, oh my God, Blaine Novak. Interesting fellow. Uh, there's another female in this, uh, Colleen Camp, who plays a country singer. And this was a really interesting touch that I, I appreciated uh, because Colleen Camp is great and... At the time, this was the urban cowboy era of countrypolitan. So there was a, a moment in New York City uh, where, you know, there were country music clubs the way there were, had been jazz clubs previously and rock clubs uh, predominantly at the time. But country was a thing, particularly among, like, you know, urban, uh, you know, semi-sophisticates, you know, you know proto-yuppie types. And Colleen Camp plays the singer in one of these clubs, and she's extremely good. And she's having an affair with, uh, God, she has an affair with everybody in this movie. Yeah, she, she does. <laughs> and she and she's very funny. And and her one on one scene with Ritter, where she takes him home, is is one of the best scenes in the movie. She yeah, she's very she's just funny and great in this. She's really underrated. Yeah, and the other woman in this is uh, Patty Hanson, the supermodel who would be Keith Richards' girlfriend, as a cab driver. Not in any way convincing as a cab driver. Uh, except in how much she smokes cigarettes, uh, and, and her name and is, her name is like Wendy or something, and Gazara keeps calling her Sam, Sam, the ice cream man. And all of the women in this movie are incredibly beautiful. I know you were saying you weren't a big Dorothy Stratton fan, but but I no, thought I'm not going to say she's not beautiful. She certainly uh, was, but she's incredibly she beautiful, was women, charismatic. All of whom bogdanovich had been romantically involved in which i just found out reading his book about dorothy stratton's death the killing of the unicorn uh he was involved with hansen with <laughs> colin camp with dorothy stratton it's it's really uh head spinning to think of bogdanovich <laughs> being involved with all these women and then sticking them in his movie it's it's i yeah. can't imagine the shooting of this thing it really must have been disgusting poem that it was like <laughs> The tiger oh. is hunted for its skin. The rhino for its horn. Some, 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 what of the unicorn? <laughs> With, yeah, whether the unicorn. So yes, yes. By, and then they're credited to anonymous, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, nobody wants didn't credit. You for just that. write this by Donovich, yeah, yeah. 
Um, and there is a shot of Dorothy Stratton holding a unicorn doll in the movie. Yes. Just to, you know, in case your blood hasn't completely turned to ice at that point. <laughs> yes. Uh, Audrey Hepburn, yeah, uh, one of her rare appearances on screen at the time, you know, uh, probably her last movie before the Spielberg movie, uh, always at the end of the decade. Um, she plays the wife of a diplomat, and Glenn Scarpelli plays her son from One Day at a Time. And uh, watching this, and she's, you know, she's Audrey Hepburn, and she's this incredibly powerful presence on screen. But, you know, it's the older lady. And I was watching, I was like, yeah, no wonder Glenn Scarpelli grew up to be gay, being toted around Manhattan by Audrey Hepburn at a tender age. Um, <laughs> and she apparently was having an affair with uh, Gazzara or Benny, as Bogdanovich always refers to him. Benny and I were talking. And he and you know, he and, and Audrey were getting it on. Um, and it's so what's good about the movie is a lot of the city, a lot of New York in 1980, uh, really a feeling of you are there. I was there. I, it was very nostalgic for me to watch this. I'll bet. At the same time, um, I was baffled by it. I couldn't follow it. I didn't like these people. And I didn't know what was going on. There, there consistently seemed to be an attempt at lighter than air romance, but it was just weighted down, not just by Dorothy Stratton's ghost, but just these kind of unpleasant characters smoking cigarettes and doing things I couldn't follow. Mm, yeah, and and you know, I know this movie was uh, a huge I'm sorry, influence that, it's on Paul Schneider. It's Paul Schneider. It's not, I've, I said Eric. I apologize. Oh, yeah, yeah. Paul, that's right. Oh, uh, we have a couple of fact checks to do from the last episode, too. We'll get to that at the sure. end. Sure. Sorry. Um, I, I know this uh, movie was a huge influence on Wes Anderson, who and, and Noah Baumbach, actually. How? Um, well, in being... You hear that, and it's like... I'll tell you in, how. In what I'll, way? Yeah. In, in being... I'm going to get together my eight favorite actors. Sure. I'm going to I'm going to set them loose off in the world in this formless way where I wander in and out just like Royal Tenenbaums or I mean that that's the movie in particular that calls this one to mind the most to me in terms of where you see the most direct influence. Um but I, I just am basically in love with this cast of people, and I'm right. just going yeah. to set them loose wandering around the city and kind of fade in and out of their lives that way. And and, uh, and, in, and, in, this, and in this same thing you're talking about, like the attempt at the lighter than air, like I, I want it to have elements of old Hollywood screwball comedy, but also I want to... But I want to combine that with Altman naturalism and... And right. and I when when I saw it, I, I man, I really felt like wow, this is like a real blueprint for for the Wes Anderson stuff that, like you and I've talked about, is all anyone does in a certain school of comedy now, and and has done for the past twenty years. All sitcoms are based off of Wes Anderson now. Um, yeah. All single camera sitcoms, at least, uh, he's really come to define a, the modern era of comedy. You, you know, at least non kind of. Uh, adam sandler comedy or whatever and um yeah and i i really felt like seeing this like yeah this is the wellspring for it see i i don't get that at all because i i don't think of i don't think of wes anderson ever letting anyone loose 
I think of everything being so tightly controlled. Every it's like, gotten that way more and more. It's inch but of bottle the, rocket. Of the screen. Bottle rocket. Yeah, bottle, uh, bottle rocket is essentially like a student film compared to what Wes Anderson, as we understand him, is. But he's gotten more fussy and more controlled as he's gone on, without question, and and more. Um, I'm going to do this the more ornate plotting, like like you're saying. You, you know, like yeah. uh, what's the one with? Oh God damn it, the Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, right. right. Those are those are yes, they're much fussier. But I think the movies rush more. The movies that came to define his style. Yeah, I think it's much. But even that, I just I think of it as so utterly controlled. And this movie is utterly rudderless. Well, and, uh, and, you know, and, and uh, to me, that's the charm is like, there is a certain part where it's like, uh, this is what was really going on with these people to whatever sure. degree. And, um, and it is, it does get the feeling of more of a hangout movie. And to yeah. me, more, I'm more charming. I guess I'm saying this, especially because of Gazara running around, but, uh, like St. Jack by Peter Bogdanovich, which you mentioned, which I also love, a, a more, charming uh it's almost like cassavetti's stuff right like uh it's yeah yes, to it, a degree but to me it seemed like cocaine clunky and artless kind of yeah i i guess i you know i just appreciated watching it it's the thing we've talked about where it's like god man this this was a bad movie in yeah, 1980 well, there's that. and yeah. And, yeah. and now it's now we get nothing but superhero movies and and there's an honesty to it uh, in sure. terms of that clunkiness you're talking about, like an honesty and a vulnerability. Manhattan, Woody Allen's Manhattan. Yeah. It's so grosses you out now watching um, right. Mar- Mara Hemingway. But uh, it's a fucking masterpiece. I mean, it's, but it's amazing. Absolutely. But that part of it does creep you out. Believe it sure. or not, the Dorothy Stratton thing did not creep me out here the, because she's he doesn't give her a lot of dialogue and right. he shoots her roller skating. And like you said, she right. looks like a kid roller skating. And there is a certain honesty yeah. to him not trying to dress it up with, my God, she's so sophisticated and above her age. <laughs> yeah. it, it, which is such I bullshit. So. And this is honest. This is what was going on. And, and I and I don't and I don't think any director would do that now. Would would be that honest about it. No, absolutely not. And certainly Woody Allen didn't do that. But uh No. I, you know, and you could be honest though, because I bring my intense knowledge of this. I read that Killing of the Unicorn book. I read another book about the Dorothy Stratton murder. I was completely obsessed with it as a kid. I saw Star 80 in the theater. That was an R-rated film I snuck into. I watched the uh, Death of a Centerfold with Jamie Lee Curtis and Bruce White's Belker from Hill Street Blues as Paul Snyder. And um, so I bring a lot to that. And I think of... Bogdanovich, and where he is, I mean, he, she's the unicorn to him. And such mm-hmm. a unicorn, by the way, that he then took up with her little sister after she was oh, killed. I know. Oh, my God. <laughs> and um, and just and the way he portrays himself in that book. And there's a line in that book that has always stuck out in my head for whatever reason, this combination of words. He's like, yeah, I wasn't much into the Playboy Mansion. I'd stop by on occasion for a sandwich or some conversation. And I was like, a sandwich and some conversation at the Playboy Mansion. So he's full of shit, obviously. And uh, I guess, you know, I bring that into this. And I see this kid. And we always see Dorothy Stratton on roller skates in Playboy. She was in that weird uh, 
Playboy special that was on TV, like like the roller games or whatever it was that, you know, launched my puberty in 1980. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and in Star 80. And here she is on roller skates again here. And again, such a, you know, and, and that was, and believe me, everybody was on roller skates in 1980. It wasn't oh, just sure. to do. Yeah. But. You know, so I, I guess I bring that to the to the table that I, I couldn't divorce myself from it to just watch the movie. But Bogdanovich does say this is his favorite film of his own. And yeah. Quentin Tarantino says it's his favorite Bogdanovich film. You know, and and that's another guy. That's another get my get my group of my favorite actors together and just watch them hang out and talk. Although I, he's but, masterful. I mean, I mean he's, yes, <laughs> intensely written dialogue. You know, I mean, meticulous. Yes, absolutely, every sense, absolutely. Every syllable. No, it's he's he's uh, crafting that feeling <laughs> as a right. He, right. He's not, yes, absolutely. No, which but, you know, but, interesting. Interestingly, you get from the first uh, couple of Bogdanovich movies, which is just the intense craftsmanship. Yeah, yeah but there, which, but there, like I said, there is an honesty here. The scenes with kids struck me as really honest about seventies parents and how how my 100%. parents interacted with me. Th- yeah. That feels very real, and I think they are Bogdanovich's kids. They're Bogdanovich's even, right? kids, yeah, yeah. All that stuff felt very authentic to me. So, so yeah, I we split on this. I'm saying hitter. You're saying shitter. I'm saying shitter, but it's a must-see. I'm yes, saying no yes. one who uh, is a fan of movies should not see this movie. Everybody should see it. I've been yeah. thinking, you know, I mean, I, I'll never tell anybody to not see a movie. I think you should see every movie. Sure. But uh, it didn't work for me. I'm glad I saw it. I will probably watch it again. Uh, I sold a bunch of DVDs last week. I pulled this one out of the pile. I kept it. And Yeah. Uh, I will then move us along now to uh, so so that was a uh, a split, one qualified shitter, one <laughs> unqualified hitter. Yes, uh, and, so and by f- the way, we spent the whole thing just quickly saying Ritter. I I thought Ritter was good in the movie, and uh, and certainly is utilized for hey, it's Ritter the physical shtick guy. Uh, Bogdanovich yeah. clearly recognized that about him, and and it's it's right. and it does make you think if Ritter could have worked with more top tier directors, if Woody Allen had hired him, but maybe he didn't because Three's Company was not uh, had that right. kind of sitcom uh, stink to it or whatever. Very so. much, yeah, yeah. You know, Woody Allen would get around to that later, uh, yes. working with mainstream comics, but not, not certainly not coming off of. Annie Hall in Manhattan and into interiors. <laughs> right. So, uh, our last Ritter Me This film from the end of the decade. We began in 1980. We go now to 1989. Blake Edwards' Skin Deep. Uh, this is the movie that is known as the Glow in the Dark Condom movie for good reason. It is the centerpiece of the film, is this sort of ballet with glow in the dark condoms in a black room. And it became the entire focal point of the ad campaign to the point that the movie's tagline was the comedy that glows in the dark. There was a TV commercial with actual movie patrons leaving the theater just talking about the glow in the dark condom scene. So it almost becomes like a William Castle kind of thing. Like, you've got to see this to believe this. You've got to buy a ticket to see the glow in the dark condoms. It got so much attention that I even remember a newspaper article at the time 
devoted to this and Dragnet, the Tom Hanks, Dan Aykroyd version that came out that year, about they show condoms in comedies now. Yeah. Two big two big comedies this year have condom yeah. set pieces. Uh, well, Dragnet so, had actually been a couple of years earlier, but and that was really the breakthrough of condoms. That was that was eighty seven. Okay. But they were still hot because of the AIDS crisis. Condoms were still a novelty. What this did come out the same year as is Lethal Weapon 2, where one of the central gags is uh, Riggs's, I'm sorry, Murtaugh's daughter is an aspiring actress. She's all excited. She gets a TV commercial. Everybody's thrilled. Everybody stays home to watch it. And it's a condom commercial, which was so unusual and shocking at the time because they weren't any on TV. They were just starting like in New York and Los Angeles. And the next day, of course, Murtaugh goes to his office and his desk is covered in condoms. And it's ha ha, very funny. Yeah. And it is actually very funny. But uh, yeah, condoms were hot at the time. And also there was the naked gun where Leslie Nielsen is getting ready to have sex with Priscilla Presley and they put on full body condoms, which right. were novelty gag gifts you could buy, full body condoms. And, and as the well condom- as glow in the dark condoms. And, and the glow in the dark condom gag was such a big part of this movie's promotion. And like I said, the tagline and the ads that. I swear, I imagined, once we I sat and watched this movie, I swear I saw that the gag was the condom goes in <laughs> and out, disappearing in the dark, in and out, essentially showing you hardcore penetration in the movie. And then watch, came to watch Skin Deep for this podcast, was like, that gag isn't in here at all. I completely imagined that. <laughs> I completely made that up in my head. But that's you think how- it was like in and out, and then it was like, okay, let me go up to the front yes. of the bed and I'll do this for a little yes. while. Oh, it disappeared. Yeah. Oh, now I'm gonna now I'm a couple of inches above where the condom was disappearing then you before see it it's gonna disappear off. here. Then you see it peeled <laughs> off and flung on the wall and it sticks yeah, on the just, wall yeah. and it drips down. <laughs> yeah. But but that goes to show you that I create. I'd heard so much about it that I created a set piece in my head that did not exist. <laughs> that would have been fascinating. That would have been uh, I don't know what a kid to like cry uncle with Alan Garfield <laughs> with oh, the negative go- hardcore. Yeah, <laughs> to go all the hardcore out. footage. In, yeah, in, in negative in the uh, underground porno movie screens. Um, so this is Ritter's big big swing for leading man movie stardom. And Blake Edwards, of course, a legendary Hollywood director, uh, deeply in decline at this point. Uh, he had ended the 70s and gone into the 80s with probably, the, you know, the biggest movies of his career. He uh, 10 from 1979, which, you know, Bo Derek is still famous for this one role, uh, followed by SOB, which was, you know, controversial and critically acclaimed and a big hit uh, and, and a, you know, in a, in a great mess very highly enjoyable movie. And then Victor Victoria, which was a massive hit. Um, but then he went into, and I'd like to, I'd like to run down this list of flops. Trail of the Pink Panther, because that had been Blake Edwards' big thing was the Pink Panther movies with Peter Sellers as Inspector Clouseau. So Trail of the Pink Panther came out in 82 as a big Christmas movie. And it was essentially old Pink Panther bloopers edited into a Where's Inspector Clouseau mystery. And the answer was he's dead. Peter Sellers had died by that point. That was the shocking end to the movie. It was him turning yeah. the camera and saying, he's it's dead. Cool. That's where he funeral, like, like the wild, wild world of Jane Mansfield. Like his actual right. funeral. And his Cut house. to black. No credits. Lights come up in the theater. People just walking out holding it. Yeah. <laughs> 
shaking, lighting cigarettes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The following summer, 83, Curse of the Pink Panther with Ted Wass from Soap and Blossom's Dad, uh, attempting to fill the shoes of Peter Sellers, and uh, that didn't quite work. Uh, Then The Man Who Loved Women was a Christmas 83 movie, remake of a hugely popular French film back when French films could be hugely popular. Uh, This with Burt Reynolds, and that bombed. Followed it with Mickey and Maud in 85, which reunited him with Dudley Moore from 10. And I remember that being a pretty funny movie and kind of a hit. Uh, I also believe that Mickey and Maud is the source of people saying, I heart you, because that's a gag in the movie. I don't know that it ever existed culturally before that, uh, where they're mm-hmm. they're writing little love notes to each other. And in the tradition of the I Love New York t-shirt, it's an I, a little heart symbol, and then the word you. And they keep saying, why would you write I heart you? And that has never gone away. Um a Fine Mess in 1986, a movie I became obsessed with because we didn't get cable in my neighborhood of Brooklyn until 1987, right when A Fine Mess was in constant rotation on both HBO and Showtime, often at the same time. Uh, it's a kind of Laurel and Hardy tribute with uh, the great comedy team of Ted Danson and Howie Mandel. And I'm also, I'm very attached to this movie as well because there was a film critic on Channel 5 in New York, WNEW at the time, um, which became the Fox station named Stuart Klein. Uh, my friend Phil and I, every Thursday, he would review whatever the big movie was opening the next day. And he'd always end with like a little stinger. He, he rarely liked anything. So he'd sock it to the movie with like a, a little parting shot. And we try to predict like the, the Michael Caine movie, Water. You know, we try to say like, Water is polluted. But instead, he ended up with saying like, you know, Water is all dried up. I'm Stuart Klein. But A Fine Mess is the one movie I nailed. I predicted Stuart Klein's jab. He said, A Fine Mess. A mess indeed. I'm Stuart Klein. Nice. uh, Yeah, he starred personally, like Danny Peary's uh, Guide for the Film Fanatic. This is a PR, personal recommendation. H, historic. Yes. In the back of that book, he has this little uh, letter code that Aaron and I have been obsessed with our whole lives. Uh, and if more than anything, the movie's T for trash, which means not essential. Uh, the most prominent one of those being The Undertaker and his pals. Sure. Um, and don't you, you have a friend who's obsessed with uh, Stuart Klein, big fan of Stuart Klein? Yeah, David Goodman, the uh, former executive producer of Family Guy, who's the president of the Writers Guild. Yes, he's a he's a huge Stuart Klein. He 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 uh, told me that he blew his mind as a kid because he would watch Gene Shalit in the morning review the movie and say nice <laughs> things, and he'd watch him at night trash the same movie. And and he's it, I, well, you know what? We'll have David on and let him tell the story. But yeah, but we yes, have to, yeah. a huge influence on him. Yeah. yeah. David also had a brilliant idea for an episode that we're going to do. I don't even want to describe it. I want to wait till he's here to thank him for it. Yeah. So um, that's life at 86 was sort of like his uh, eight and a half was like, but it was like his old age crisis movie with Jack Lemon and Julie Andrews. And much like they all laughed, he, he distributed himself and lost $3 million. Uh, he came back in 87 with Blind Date, which was Bruce Willis's first movie star role, uh, where he plays a hapless fellow on a blind date with Kim Basinger, who is an alcoholic. And that's the whole comic premise. They keep saying, don't give her alcohol. So he takes her to a party. Naturally, she has alcohol 
loses her mind, becomes a whirlwind of destruction, and he chases her around. But it's not even like, you know, don't give her, like, peanut butter or something that might be funny. Right. Where she would accidentally, like, get in touch, you know, have peanut butter put on her forehead or something. I don't know. But right. Don't give her yeah, right. Yes. Uh, and and I want to say another, another PRH for me. Uh, I saw a blind date on an incredible day of movie, of theater hopping at the uh, Alpine Sevenplex in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, where I also saw Lethal Weapon, Tin Men. Enemy Territory with uh, Ray Parker Jr. and Ernest Goes to Camp all in one day. <laughs> it's the real gamut there. The real yeah, gamut yeah. of quality. Yes. Uh, so yeah, the next year he gave us he, Bruce Willis again in Sunset, where uh, Bruce Willis plays cowboy, silent cowboy movies star Tom Mix, and James Garner plays Wyatt Earp, who in real life, the real life sheriff who consulted on Tom Mix movies. And they were friends, and they have to solve a murder at the 1929 Academy Awards. I, uh, I watched this movie in the middle of the night once. It's rated R because of the constant foul language. Way beyond love story, even. Hard to imagine a movie going beyond love story. Was that part of the campaign? <laughs> Not beyond love story for profanity. <laughs> Fucking Tom Mix. <laughs> Wider, fucking will suck my cock. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was like once it was like uh, Deadwood on HBO. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. Uh, so then you know, in, and that, and then that was a huge bomb. And then in the nineties, uh, he did Switch with uh, your friend Ellen Barkin, which uh, oh, yeah, you can, who you can tell stories about working on uh, the new normal. Uh, Son yeah, of the Pink she, Panther. She called me. She used Roberto some profanity Benini. on me, man. Ellen <laughs> uh, Barkin used some very extreme uh, profanity to uh, describe me and and address me <laughs> on the sitcom I worked on with her. Did, did you did you earn such a blessing? Or? I did not feel that I had done anything to deserve these uh, these epithets that were hurled at me, but uh, she did. <laughs> she was upset and uh, she let me know. You know, it was really funny. You actually wrote the uh, Twitter the tweets of her character's uh, Twitter account. And uh, they were very funny. Oh, God. Do you remember doing yeah, that? Yeah, I don't even remember that. Yes. There was yeah, one that was very... Right. So, so the character was like a, you know, just an unbearable... The female you know, Archie Bunker. Racist and, and... Yeah, like an Archie Bunker. And, uh, yeah. One of the tweets was, I like my coffee like I like my men. White. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Yeah, that was her character. She was uh, yeah. outrageously yeah. politically yeah. incorrect. Yeah. She'd go there. She would yeah. go there. Yes. And then uh, Blake Edwards kind of he stepped away from making movies to focus on the Victor Victoria Broadway musical that opened to not great reviews at the end of 1995 and which contains the lyric, Paris makes me horny, not like California. <laughs> oh, God. Catchy. So filthy. So finally, <laughs> let's get to uh, Skid Deep, the comedy that glows in the dark. So it opens with this horrible fucking theme song, "Falling Out of Love" by uh, Ivan Neville. Sounds like he's so in a tin can. Formless. Yeah, just such a wash of shitty sound. <laughs> just like, and, and to me, like '89 is the worst year in history, culturally, for movies, for music, everything. Just the fucking yeah. worst. You know, there is Vaseline all over the lens for every yeah, frame of this Vaseline. movie. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
There, there's something. Something got all over. Somebody the flung the glow in the dark condom against the camera. It does. It does look it like it. Yeah. It has that very eighties like penthouse magazine pictorial look to it. Every <laughs> yeah, every they scene. may as well have like yeah, uh elbow link gloves and uh yes, Mardi Gras yes. masks and cigarette holders on. Uh yes. feathers. Um so so Ritter plays this multimillionaire novelist. He's apparently written two books and he's stalling on the third. He lives in what looks like a southern plantation in Beverly Hills, and he's a he's a heel. He uh you know, he's a man uh who thinks he loves women, but actually, uh, mis, you know, misuses and uh, does wrong by all these women he's involved with, including Denise Crosby from Star Trek and the Red Shoe Diaries, uh, Julianne Phillips, the ex Mrs. Bruce Springsteen, and uh, an actress named Allison Reed, who is sort of the female lead. She is the female lead, and she's like a zilch. Um, and the big gag, uh, the big kind of physical gag, slapstick set piece the blake edwards trademark moment using ritter which i thought didn't work at all was uh he's playing the piano and he's he's faking playing the piano and this is another thing you know that brings to mind dudley moore playing the piano in 10 and how amazing that was how great that worked because the guy's a brilliant pianist and he and he was able to bring that to his character into the movie so this is ritter just kind of you know bouncing his shoulders up and down and very nonchalantly, Julianne Phillips comes over, spreads lighter fluid on the piano, lights it up, and then this giant plantation mansion burns to the ground. And he's got to go live at uh, in a bungalow at like the Chateau Mormont or the uh, Beverly Hilton or someplace like that. And, but there's uh, a decent amount of other physical shtick too. He oh, gets his electroshock sure. therapy, and yeah. yeah, he dances to aerobics, and yeah, there's a yeah. in his t- little uh, bikini underwear. There's a lot of a lot of Ritter shtick in this movie. Yeah, yeah, the the big one, and I mean, God, was that dead on arrival? The electroshock thing, like, <laughs> yes. oh my God, was that also Julianne Phillips? She hooks him up to the electroshocks. Yes, and, that's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. some reason and don't he ends forget, up. Yeah, don't forget uh, former solid gold dancer Chelsea Field also as one of. The oh, that's right. Here. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. So yeah, a lot of eighties ladies. Yeah, the greatest solid gold dancer uh, movie performance since the guy who. Uh, was the rock star in um, Trick or Treat. <laughs> he was a solid gold dancer. God. Oh, I wish they'd bring that show back. I really do. Oh, it's so goddamn good. That went, that yeah. meant Saturday night was here. Oh, well, Dance yeah. Fever followed by... Did you have Dance Fever? Oh, yeah. Danny Terrio. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yes. Yeah, good I mean, stuff. This was the lineup. I mean, this was the dream. I mean, I, I could live in that lineup for... Seven o'clock was Siskel and Ebert. Into Dance Fever... I mean, you have to change channels into yeah. solid gold. Oh, fantastic. I mean, just drop me off there, man. Yeah, So, no uh, But the primary relationship in this movie, in Skid Deep, is between Ritter and Vincent Gardenia as his bartender. And Ritter's a, a fucking alcoholic. Oh, and yeah. And it's not like uh, Kim Basinger. He's not like a funny alcoholic. He's like a tragic alcoholic. And once again, recalling Ted, where uh, Dudley Moore down in Mexico on the resort has this relationship with Brian Dennehy, which is maybe the greatest, you know, bartender, barfly relationship in the history of the movies. This really doesn't work. And Gardenia is is oddly miscast. Um, and there's a part where Ritter is just kind of gushing about all the different kinds of women he, <laughs> he's in love with. He's like, 
big voluptuous women with curves, little boy women with tiny firm tits. And Vincent Gardini goes, "Stop! I'm getting a hard on." <laughs> Which they then cut to inside his pants. You get a close up of Gardini's <laughs> penis raising in erection. He with was a, a slight whistle actor. sound. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there was a little drip on the, on the front of his pants. Oh, he, has an, he has an interesting uh, wardrobe in the movie, too. Uh, Gardenia. He's got the, the Buckwheat shirt. Uh, well, it's Daffy Duck <laughs> it's as Daffy Buckwheat. It's Daffy Duck as Buckwheat. It's a duck. Look, I'm, you're absolutely this movie's not funny. I, I have tears rolling down my face. Duckwheat. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, it, we are laughing. I mean, yeah, and it's two sizes too small. You get, you got, you can it's clearly a kid's see T-shirt. Yeah, you can clearly see his belly with his erection rising in the frame beneath it. That he it's, got it's, from hearing about little girl boy, yes. little boy girls with tiny tits. Yeah. Uh, oh, it's another thing that was interesting was that like uh, like Dudley Moore in Ten Ritter hates rock music, so this is sort of you imagine this is a Blake Edwards touch. This is something he really wanted to communicate. Yeah, rock music sucks. <laughs> so um, you know these women, they're all angry at uh, Ritter and they're suing him and his lawyer is played by Joel Brooks who was a very well known uh, sitcom character actor he played Mrs. Garrett's nebbish son Raymond on the Facts of Life not her cool like uh, rock and roll dirty animal son uh, this is the guy who was constantly in trouble for just being lame um, and then you know one of the big set pieces is involves a bodybuilder named Lonnie who was played by Ray Hollett, who was one of the original American gladiators. And uh, just a couple of years earlier, made her debut as female boxer in the great, in Yama Fanaka's great penitentiary three. Right. And, and, and they the have joke, a, a scene. The yeah. joke kind of is, can you imagine having sex with a woman who's muscular? Like, Mike, yeah. can you imagine such a thing? Uh, I, I can, and, and that's yeah. all I can do. Yeah, I mean, I mean, me too, and it's like, but here it's like, my God, oh, yeah. that, you know, that would never happen. That's that's the big yeah. joke of the uh, of the scene, basically. And yeah, she was also featured on the commercial, like, in her bikini top, flexing her, her big arms and stuff. And uh, Yeah. So, uh, then let's get to the glow-in-the-dark condom scene. So, this occurs, uh, Chelsea Field is the girlfriend of a rock star uh, in the bungalow next to Ritter. And the rock star is your very typical late 80s fake rock star with the fake rock star British accent that yeah. uh, you don't really see. Anymore. I remember the amazing Jonathan had a punk magician character where they put on a party store punk wig or he would and, and he'd go, look at me cards. Fuck you. And that's what the Who, so that's what this guy. Let me is. ask you something. Who do you yeah. think was the main inspiration for that cheesy seventies, eighties, the British snotty rocker? Was it's it got to be Johnny Jagger? Rotten. It's got to be well, Johnny Rotten. It, it, but I always think. See, it's interesting because I always think of it not quite punk. That's a whole other thing. Well, it's like not. You're right. The Earth You're right. On WKRP. Yeah. I always think of it as more like the because it's preening and long haired and. I'm superior to you, but but in in more of a bring me my Dom Perignon way. Well, that's that's I, a, like, I think that's a different character. That's you're talking about Malcolm McDowell and Get Crazy. 
Yes, yeah. Like, was that Mick Jagger? Is that who that was we Mick were Jagger and on? Bowie combined? Okay. I think mostly and Bowie. Jagger. Okay, there you yeah. go. Yes, that makes sense. But no, Bowie this is the Michael DeBar, as you said, scum of the earth on WKRP. Right. Yeah. You know, except Michael DeBar is an actual rocker <laughs> and, and a funny guy. But yeah. uh, no, this is more akin to uh, what we would see uh, in 1995 in a little film called <laughs> Animal Instincts Three: The Seductress with a uh, rock and roll guitar player named Trick Willie, who out of nowhere shows up with this accent that occasionally becomes Irish. And uh, <laughs> this galled me as the writer of the screenplay of Animal Instincts 3. <laughs> but look, you know, I couldn't step on the toes of a fellow artist. He brought that to the character. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, maybe he had a whole backstory for how the guy really was <laughs> Irish and he was hiding it. <laughs> yeah, who knows? And I would like us to do an examination of the movies that I wrote that got made, but we have to have the proper guest on. And it will not be Gregory Dark, the director of those <laughs> movies. Yeah. Who is someone I have a lot of affection is. for, but we're, uh, we're not going to have him on the show. <laughs> yeah. unless, unless he wants to do it. Only if uh, he wants to talk about, like, you know, Yahoo serious movies. He can't talk about his movies. No, not his own movies. He, yeah, he can yeah. only review, you know, <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. The Yahoo Hogan. serious movies that are not Young Einstein. <laughs> exactly. The other ones, that, yeah. Greg, if you're listening, you can come on and talk about that. <laughs> you can talk about true identity with Lenny Henry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to see that. <laughs> Uh, Greg so, would have some interesting things to say oh about that. God, that's for sure. Yeah. Oh, oh God, man. the man who discovered Jack Baker. <laughs> yes, after uh, he'd been on Happy Days as Sticks. Anyway, we're getting deep into. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> go but, back and listen yeah. to our our Hustler episode. <laughs> yes, but but the condom scene, uh, the with the lights out and Ritter about to seduce the the girlfriend of the rock star and then the rock star comes in and he's got his condom on and there's dueling floating yeah. condoms. Uh, it, the movie also ends with an identical sequence that really doesn't top it, except that it's a red, yeah. white, and blue condom. And it does, it didn't make me think like, okay, that condom scene must've killed in a test screening. They said, go shoot another one, tack it on the end, center the whole thing around this as a campaign. Uh, I'm assuming it was just something that killed its screenings. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and I didn't think it was particularly funny, but I guess because I had like I was so familiar with it. I mean, they even showed sure. a little bit of it on the commercial at the time. Yeah. Um. But I, uh, I thought this was fairly torturous to sit through. Uh, I'm going to call it a shitter. Yeah, I, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do your thing. I'm going to do the qualified shitter and just say right. that it's, it's, it is a. It is a good Ritter showcase. You like John Ritter. It's a lot of Ritter. And and he, you know, and he, it's not a great script. Um, it's very, it gets very melodramatic towards the end as we turn into a more sincere bottoming out story. But that's also what I appreciated. I appreciated that Blake Edwards was known for doing very slick mainstream comedies that he would insert a little bit of himself in. And you yeah. certainly get that here. Um, at his best, John Ritter kind of reminded me of Gary Shandling, like his kind of late 80s, early 90s sure. insecure persona. sex yeah. hound persona. And um, 
Yeah, yeah. So I just I I can't imagine recommending to anyone on earth, hey, sit through this. Um, but I <laughs> but I did uh, I did uh, uh, appreciate the, uh, I did appreciate the the attempt. Yeah. All right. So that was uh, Ritter me this episode 002 of Crackpot Cinema. A uh, little house cleaning. Uh, we both uh, we both made some mistakes, although I made more than you did in our first episode in discussing. Oh, thank God. British pornographer uh, Paul Raymond, I credited him with um, publishing the magazine White House and Mayfair, and that was actually a man named David Sullivan. And I knew this, but some for some reason I didn't know it for the actual time period that we were talking about it, uh, who then also produced uh, the Mary Millington movies like uh, Playbirds and Come Play With Me, uh, was part of that whole thing. And I've like read books about both of these guys and that was completely absent from my mind. And then we talked about Fiona Richmond and you brought up the movie Fiona on fire as being her story. And it is not, but I remembered it that way too. It's not on fire. No, it's not. It's, it's a completely unrelated, uh, porno movie. Okay. With uh, the name Fiona. So, uh, I want, to thank, I, want, uh, I want eighth grade me who saw it on Cinemax at night to, he, <laughs> I, he's the one who was not paying attention, clearly. But I, I knew I had fucked up the David Sullivan thing at the time, and, and I hope nobody noticed, but I'm glad uh, George, listener George White let me know. Nice. He, uh, he picked up on it. So thank you, George White. Uh, you get to continue listening to this podcast. Uh, yes. As does anyone else who has listened to this podcast. But thank you. But yeah, yeah, call us out. Uh, I'll be more, yeah. uh, more active on the uh, Facebook page and social media. And our next episode, uh, we, we're going to do a little timely salute. It's going to be Crackpot Kirk Douglas. And the movies I would like to suggest we watch are uh, The Villain from 1979 with Arnold Schwarzenegger, a Western parody. A 1974 uh, Canadian TV movie that I just discovered called Mousy. Did you look that up? I sent you the link. Uh, yes, yes. Dying to watch Mousy. Mousy. Uh, Holocaust 2000, which is a Omen ripoff, and then Tough Guys, which is his 1986 comeback movie with Burt Lancaster. So that'll be in episode three of Crackpot Cinema. And I think I have come up with our sign-off line. Oh, let's hear it. Which is... Until next time, crack or get off the pot. <laughs> I, you know, those filthy animals of the 70s we loved would be proud. My dad oh. would approve yeah. of My crack Uncle Bobby, or get off Uncle the pot. Uncle Baco high-fiving us. Yeah. And, and should it be something way. like, until then, crack yeah. or get off the pot. Yeah, yeah. okay. I'm going to yeah. let and you we'll do it. We'll switch you off week to it. week. Like, save us the aisle sure. seat. Yeah. Yeah. So, you, you came so, up with this, so you get the first one. So I'll say, yeah. Next time, crackpot Kirk Douglas. And until then crack or get off the pot. <laughs>